Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Well, today, guys, we have back on the show the legendary Greg Braden. And today we are talking about ancient civilizations and lost history, specifically how were the pyramids built, where we actually began in our history, and so much more. This is a fascinating conversation. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome back to the show returning champion, Greg Braden. How are you doing, Greg? Hey, well, thank you for that warm introduction. It's good to, to start as a champion today. I'm, I'm doing well. I am uh, coming to you as before from our studio just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I've got to tell you, this day with you is the first day in two weeks. We haven't seen rain and snow. So I'm, you brought I'm, I'm, sunshine to the high desert. I'm happy to be I'm, with you. I am glad. To, I'm glad I could help you, sir. I'm glad I could help you. Uh, our last conversation was uh, such a hit with our audience, and I think we made plans right after our first conversation, even before yeah. that other one was released. We're like, we got to keep talking. We have to. I have to come back. We have to make something happen. So I appreciate. I know you're very busy, man. I appreciate you coming back on the show. And today's conversation really wanted to to tackle something that you know a little bit about uh, in regards to ancient uh, ancient civilizations. Mm-hmm technologies of ancient civilization, spirituality in that space as well. So I'll just start with a very easy question. Who built the pyramids? Well, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm, I'm going to start, I'll start with an easy answer uh, to, to lay a foundation. Sure. To the answer to that question. If I can, you know, when, when I was in school uh, back in the, in the Midwest of this big, beautiful country we live in 1950s, 1960s, uh, I was taught at that time, what we are still teaching our children today. And that is that civilization began uh, in, a, uh, in an isolated location in what today we call the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and it began in a primitive state and evolved in a linear fashion, slowly, gradually over a long period of time to what we have today. The problem with that story, Alex, is the evidence doesn't support it. Uh, And there is still a uh, there's a battle to maintain what is called the the standard model when it comes to our history, when it comes to civilization, when it comes to science, when it comes to physics, when it comes to human origins. There there's a battle to maintain this static story. Excuse me. It was developed, you know, in late 1800s, early 1900s, even though the evidence no longer supports it. So the new the new discoveries are now telling us that rather than a single cradle of civilization, excuse me, in the the Tigris Euphrates, 
rather than a single cradle, that there now appear to have been at least five simultaneous cradles of civilization. And some of those are very familiar to us. There was one in China. There was one in the, in the Tigris-Euphrates. That was Mesopotamia. Uh, there is the Indus Valley. Mysterious uh, technologies have been found buried in the Indus Valley and what now is uh, in India and Pakistan. There was uh, Corral in northern Peru. There was Mesoamerica. There was uh, the, the area in what we now call uh, the UK and, and Europe and, and that part of the world. So <clears throat> these five, or depending on how you look at them, maybe six simultaneous civilizations. Oh, and Egypt. Egypt was certainly a, a part of that. And that's, this is a long answer to, mm -hmm. to, to your question. They appear to, to have been uh, simultaneous. There appears to be a, a communication. There's a continuity of knowledge between these civilizations in terms of agriculture, the ability to grow large amounts of food in hostile environments to feed large populations, certainly mathematics, certainly architecture, multi-story buildings. It's no easy feat to build these, these multi-story structures the way they were built. Uh, and a, a knowledge of the cosmos that was so advanced, Alex, in many instances, it was discounted as myth until the 20th century when our own satellites began telling us more about the, the neighborhood that we live in, our solar system neighborhood. And, and lo and behold, these ancient traditions had it right on. So the question that <clears throat> comes up often is uh, where did these civilizations come from? And, uh, and I think the answer to that question may be the answer to who built the pyramids. So that's why I wanted to, to lay that, that foundation. Thank you. What we know <clears throat> is that there, uh, I'm a, a geologist by degree, and I, I rarely get to use that, uh, that degree anymore uh, with a strong background in, in the life sciences, math, physics, computer science, cosmology, and, um, and archaeology. And I, I say that, once again, because it's that multidisciplinary background that helps me to stay current in many different fields as new fields of science, as new discoveries are being revealed. And I, I got to tell you what we're going to talk about in this program. It's no secret in the scientific community. It is simply there's there's a resistance to embracing it in the mainstream. So mainstream textbooks, mainstream classrooms. And the reason is uh, because of the pushback from the religious community, from the political community, certainly from the uh, the 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 technological community, uh, and, and much more. So what I'm saying to you uh, is, is peer-reviewed. It's out there in the, in the open literature. It's just not something that we often hear about. So I'll, I'll just, uh, the mystery is, where did those simultaneous uh, advanced civilizations come from, and that might be where we want to go with this. But I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I'll stop there and and uh, see if it no, makes no, sense and where you like would, to go. Yeah, I would love. Yeah, let's let's dive into where these ancient civilizations come from because it's it is such a mystery to I mean anyone who has a logical mind to even look at the pyramids and and believe the story that we've been told. It just doesn't make logical sense. Well, let's anymore. let's let's talk about the pyramids for for a little bit. I had my my first opportunity. I had studied the pyramids since I was a kid. You know, I've been fascinated by this stuff. Uh, you know, I was five years old. My mom was helping me to read books by Edgar Cayce about mm -hmm. lost civilizations and, 
And we were memorizing the planets in the solar system and the names of the dinosaurs and the, the kings of, of Egypt. So I've been fascinated by this stuff for, for a very long time. My first journey into Egypt was 1986. <clears throat> and, um, and I was just... Uh, I was just astounded by what I saw. Now, that was a very different Egypt from what we see today. There are a lot of places now that are restricted and they have been um, uh, revamped, you know, for public consumption. It was much more raw uh, back in, in the, 19, the 1980s, 1990s. So, but the, the pyramid, and we talk about pyramids, there are pyramids all over the world. And it's the similarity of those pyramids that... Uh, that brings to mind the question, where did they come from? But typically when people talk about pyramids, they're talking about three pyramids on the Giza Plateau uh, in Egypt. And interestingly, the largest of those is called the Great Pyramid. And it's not the one that people show in the pictures because the Great Pyramid does, does not have a capstone. It's flat on top. That capstone was lost at mm -hmm. some point in history. There's another one of the three that does have a, a, a capstone, and that's the one that the news anchors and television and movies, they always call that the Great Pyramid, and it's not. <laughs> but the, uh, there are so many, I mean, we could do a whole program on the mysteries of that single structure alone. It's over 400 feet tall. Uh, it is made of massive blocks of, of limestone. When I was there, I went back in 1989, and there was a, a scientific group that was trying to recreate the Great Pyramid. And uh, the first thing that they discovered was that none of the equipment, they were using uh, caterpillar tractors and forklifts and things like that. None of the equipment that we had at that time could lift the blocks, the 20 ton blocks of the pyramid. So they had to go to the caterpillar tractor company and, and have commissioned them to build a, a special device that they then could use to build the pyramid. And after six months, the Egyptian government told them to clean up their mess and go home. They simply could not replicate the technology. The way, when we see that pyramid, what we're seeing actually is, is a part of the structure that was never meant to be seen. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So there were essentially three layers of the pyramids of Giza and the Great Pyramid. The outer layer was encased in highly polished uh, limestone, looked like marble, uh, a white that would have reflected that light in just a magnificent way. And there, there are only a few layers of that left on one side at the bottom uh, because it has been stripped away for convenience uh, used in other buildings throughout uh, Cairo in other mosques and other uh, primarily in, in other mosques and other structures that are there. Uh, so what we're seeing now is the inside that was never meant to be seen. And these are the, this, the tiered limestone blocks and inside of that was built around a, the rooms themselves are granite, uh, the King's chamber, the Queen's chamber a massive, massive, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 ton blocks that are so highly polished. Uh, we can't do this with our technology today. They're, they're less than one one thousandth of an inch of tolerance between the stones. There's no mortar holding these together and they've been there for centuries. The mathematics 
involves uh, the mathematics, the circumference of the Earth and the diameter of the Earth and the Earth's relationship to the moon, our relationship <clears throat> to the magnetic fields of the planet. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So the question is, how, how was it done? And obviously, these were not primitive people that were doing this. Right. So when I was there in, um, in 1989, another scientific group was there and they were given access. This is the only time this has ever happened. They were given access to the casing stones that we see today and permission to drill core samples into those casing stones because <clears throat> when you do that, you're destroying the, the stone. So I've been mean, part of it. So obviously it's not happening a lot. So they, they took the core samples and the, and I was a geologist, what you would expect to see if these were naturally occurring limestone blocks taken from the surrounding limestone in the area, there's a lot of limestone in the area, you would expect in those core samples to see what you see in naturally occurring limestone. You would expect laminations, you would expect uh, microfossils, uh, maybe visible fossils because it was presumably from, from ocean bottom. And what they found in the core samples was just the opposite of that. There, there were no laminations. The entire block appears to, to be homogeneous. That's not what you see in nature when nature is laying those, uh, you know, year layers. after year after yeah. year, the, the layers that go down. But they also found air bubbles, they found insects, and they found human hair. And, uh, and what they, when they did the chemical analysis, there were chemicals in the blocks that do not occur naturally. So the bottom line, I mean, this is a mind blower. This is 1989 when they found this, it is the question, how did they get massive blocks of such high tolerance fitting perfectly 400 feet above the surface? And, you know, I mean, if you watch the old movies and Charlton Heston, you know, and yeah. Exodus, <laughs> What you see is, you know, a million slaves with ropes and log rollers, and they're rolling yeah. them up sand ramps and all that, you know, and maybe that happened in some places later on. That very possibly could have happened later on, but that's not what happened with the, the three pyramids, the Great Pyramids on Giza. And what they found was and what was published, and the pushback was tremendous, is that these stones are what are called, uh, they're artificial stone. And the way they were created is they were, in fact, the stone itself was mined from nearby limestone quarries. It was then pulverized and mixed with a high-tech epoxy that allowed it to be plastic, you know, kind of molten, uh, or at least, um, you know, soft, poured into molds. And then those molds, they, it was hardened. Uh, and the molds were poured on site. So that's why you could pour one block next to another and get one one thousandth of an inch tolerance. So, you know, and I talk to people about this. I have, I used to do a lot of programs on this, not so much anymore. But one of the questions people say, okay, well, you know, what's the big deal? Artificial stone. Well, we didn't know really how to create this. Uh, there's a, another interesting story that goes with this. In um, 1990, some of our viewers remember the U.S. was about to invade Iraq in what was called the first Gulf War. I, I remember watching on TV. I was crying watching on TV. I didn't Me want too. to see it happen. Yeah. And there's a backstory to this. Saddam Hussein knew that he, that America would, well, everybody knew because we broadcast that we were going to sure. attack. He contacted an American artist 
who was using the technology that was used in the Great Pyramids, uh, he contacted that artist because he wanted that technology to harden his bunkers before the uh, the U.S. forces attacked Iraq. He wanted that uh, the epoxy-based uh, stone so that he could harden those bunkers. And the U.S. got wind of this, U.S. government, and uh, made it illegal. They forbade the, the artist from sharing his patented technology with Saddam Hussein uh, that would have actually hardened those bunkers against uh, the shock and awe that, that we were doing. So, so the, the point is the technology that was used to build the pyramids was so advanced, we weren't even really doing it until the 20th century. And, uh, and it had military applications that were recognized pretty quickly. And we still don't do it. And we still aren't using it heavily in our construction or anything like that right now. No, not in. Uh, there are some artists that, that are using this, but but you don't see it in construction. So, so this was a mind blower to the to the scientific community in 1989 because all the textbooks say those blocks were carved and then somehow mysteriously moved in into place. Now we go down just adjacent to the Giza Plateau is the Great Sphinx, and I I know most of our viewers are familiar with the Sphinx. And as a geologist, I was fascinated when I went there in 86, because what is what you see uh, on the, the back of the Sphinx, on the rump, and this is a, a view that you don't often get in, you know, in mainstream, they're always looking either a profile or right on at the face. But what you see is there, they're, first of all, the Sphinx is carved from uh, in place from a limestone bluff that was in place. So it's, it's like there was a, a solid limestone bluff and the Sphinx was carved and then all the empty space around it is where the rock was cleared and moved away to, to, so that the Sphinx looks like this isolated, uh, you know, standing structure. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was actually carved in place. When you go around to the back of the Sphinx on the rump, you see erosion marks that are about 12 feet deep in some places. And it's limestone. Limestone's a sedimentary rock. And when uh, there are some parts of the limestone that are more resistant than others, and the softer parts are what get eroded away, creating these erosion marks. Well, there was a there is a, a geologist from Boston University, Robert Schock, and I know many people are familiar with his, his work now, uh, because of the Charlton Heston special. Charlton Heston did, did a special on, on the Great Sphinx. And Robert Schock was the first one that credibly questioned the age of the Sphinx from a geologic perspective. And what he did was he looked at those erosion marks, the same ones I'm, I'm looking at, and he said, well, this is obviously fluvial erosion. The term fluvial means high, it's, it's based in water. And it would take high amounts of water moving quickly over long periods of time to create that kind of erosion. Up until that time, the scientists had called it aeolian erosion, which means it was wind, wind blowing, mm. you know, sand like sandpaper and, and, and cutting it away. Robert Schock said, no, it's obvious. This is fluvial erosion. And Here's here's where the kicker comes in. The only time that there has been that kind of water, high amounts, fast moving water over long periods of time, uh, 
predates anything our textbooks are talking about when it comes to the the pyramids. We're told the pyramids were built uh, approximately 45, 4,500, maybe 5,000 years ago. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And uh, the water that would be required for that erosion has not been seen since the melting of the ice at the end of the last ice age, which is right around between, uh, sorry, around 12, 13,000 years BP before present. Mm -hmm. So if that is the case, it means the structure had to already be existing at 12 to 13,000 BP. It had to be older than that. And this is, this is where the problems are, are coming in today. Now, uh, as a geologist, I, I was a member of a, a geologic uh, organization, AAPG, American Association of Petroleum Geologists was the, mm. the term, but it's about more than petroleum. And they have a journal, a peer-reviewed journal that comes out. Robert Schock published his findings in AAPG and the scientists, the real scientists, not the pop scientists, they looked at that data and they said, of course, of course, this is fluvial erosion. Of course, it had to have happened, uh, you know, 12, 13,000 years before present. They accepted it no problem. The geologists have no problem. The historians have a, a horrible problem because it means the history is wrong. And the evidence, the evidence no longer supports the history. And what, what I find fascinating, Greg, is that the, the pyramids, which were supposed to be the oldest of all of them, uh, it seems to uh, two things. One, it's, it was said it was a, a king's chamber, uh, yet there is never been. There's nothing that's no. ever proven that at all. They've never found a corpse. There's no hieroglyphs. It completely goes against every other tomb we've ever found. And two, it seems that the technology keeps getting worse. So the pyramids, as they get closer to our time period, seem to degrade almost in the style that they're being built. They should be getting better and yeah, there should be yeah. more of them out there, right? Well, this, it is true, Alex. And it's something, it, this is not, well, first I'm just going to back up. The way that they have dated the pyramids, you, you cannot date something that has not been alive. You can only carbon date uh, something that has been living, uh, breathing oxygen, carbon-based life. So stone cannot be carbon dated. Uh, the way that they have dated these pyramids is by estimating through, uh, you know, who was the king at what period of time and, you know, whose face is on a statue or something like that. And then here, I mean, this makes no sense at all. They also have found uh, mice and rats inside the pyramid that are dead and mummified and they carbon date those dead mice and rats they might date till four or five thousand years before present there is nothing linking that dead rat to the origin of the pyramid i mean the rat could have come in a thousand years ago you know inside sure. of the pyramid but this is this is where the scientific community they've got the story and and they want to stick with it and there this is what i said at the beginning there's a a battle for what is called uh, the standard model. And they, they had this all nice and buttoned up, nice and tidy, you know, about the, the kings and the eras. So where all this is leading, if 
the Sphinx was already existing when the ice melted. And if the Great Pyramid was made using technology and incorporating mathematics that are so sophisticated, oh. we, we didn't know it until recently, where did that come from? All of this is pointing to, uh, and it's something I've talked about extensively, is that civilization appears to be cyclic rather than linear. So the linear model is what we're teaching our kids. We began ancient Sumeria, Mesopotamia, 5,000, 5,500 years ago. And, you know, then you've got, you know, Rome and Greece and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, all of that happens to have occurred within the most recent cycle uh, that began about 5,000 years ago. And what the, the mathematics, what the archaeology is showing is that our history appears to be closely correlated to 5,125 year long cycles. Uh, and there are five 5,125 year cycles uh, that make up one big cycle called a precession of the equinox. And I know some of our astronomers and astrologers are familiar with that. For 20, it's about 26,000 years. It is uh, related to the way that Earth is it relates to the sun and to the way that all of, I don't want to go too deep with all of this, but the our, our relationship to our, our solar system and the Milky Way. And if those of you that remember the 2012 phenomenon, you know, that's mm -hmm. what this was all about. 2012 was the end of, uh, of the last, the fifth 5,125 year long cycle and the beginning of a, a new age, a new, a new cycle that, that we're in right now. Um, so when you plot that out, I didn't know we were going to talk about this. I would have brought some slides. Mm -hmm. When you plot that out on a graph, when you look at these 5,000-year cycles, so here we are today, 2012, the beginning of a new cycle, uh, or the end of one that began 5,000 years ago. Well, here's, here's what's happening. Archaeological discoveries now are, are being made that precede that 5,000-year that cycle. So when it first started happening, scientists said, oh, well, these are anomalies. So, you know, we'll, we've, got, we've got our history and we're sure it's right. And then here's an anomaly and we'll put it over here. We'll come back and look at it later. Well, now there are so many anomalies. The anomalies are telling the new story. So you've got places like uh, the Gulf of Kambat in India. It's a three mile long, five mile wide submerged city. It's under 120 feet of water. 9,500 years before present, very sophisticated archaeology. We've got Gobekli Tepe uh, in Turkey that is still being excavated and is now over 13,000 years before present. Now that the ice is melting in Antarctica, the satellites are showing complex, massive, complex structures. These aren't like little log cabins or, you know, pit houses. I mean, these are massive structures. Uh, the ice has been there for 20,000 years. So the question is, who is building complex architectural structures 20,000 years ago in Antarctica? Well, when you plot those, what you're finding is Rome and Greece and Corral, Peru. That is the most recent 5,000-year cycle. So what we've been studying and what we've been teaching ourselves and our children is not the history of the world forever. 
It's the right. history of the world in the most recent cycle. Now we've got to start looking the 5,000 year cycle before that, where we see Corral in Peru, which is now dated. It's the oldest technologically advanced civilization in all of the Americas. It's older than the Inca, than the Aztec, than the Olmec, uh, than the Toltec. It's older than anything. We've got to rewrite all the history books. And next to it, another site has been found that's even older. There, we're told civilization began 5,000 years ago. That's when these ended. These civilizations ended when we're told that civilization began. So that, that's a 5,000 year cycle. Now you go back and you look at Gobekli Tepe. So, so we've got today back to about 5,000 years. 5,000 years to 10,000 years is another 5,000 year cycle. And that's, uh, you know, all the things, Chatol Hoyuk in, in Turkey and Corral and all those. Now we're looking at Gobekli Tepe, 13,000. So now we're looking at another we're looking at another 5,000 year cycle. And now we're looking at Antarctica, another 5,000 year cycle. So the evidence strongly supports cyclic civilization. And the question is what happens every 5,000 years? Why do those civilizations, why do we lose the memory, lose the knowledge of those civilizations? And what happened before those simultaneous, those, those five or six simultaneous civilizations where did they come from? Where did the, the knowledge for those come from? And all of it leads to a, uh, the understanding that there have been great catastrophes in our past. And one of those now is, is hotly contested, but the evidence is very strong for a, uh, a comet impact during what is called the Pleistocene geologic era, uh, as we were coming out of the last ice age and that that comet plunged us back into an ice age uh, and that brought an end to a great advanced civilization that existed on earth. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The remnants from that became those five simultaneous civilizations. The remnants became, uh, you know, the pyramids in Egypt and China and Indus Valley and all that. And this is why they had such similar mathematics, architecture, cosmology, and, and things like that. So we just covered a whole lot of ground. I'll stop and, and let's let's fill in the missing pieces here. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've studied, um, I'm assuming you obviously know about the Yugas. Uh, and the yugic cycles from sure, the yogi sure. from the yogi uh, uh, who wrote a, and he literally laid out exactly what you're saying the 26,000 year cycle, and he, the way they lay it out is that there is advanced knowledge, then we lose it, then we come back to it, and everywhere between there's like little jumps here and there, but and we're now on an upward swing towards our new our new cycle is obviously we're advancing. Technology, technologically, we're advancing. Spiritually, even we're advancing. Even the last, hopefully, in the last thirty or forty years, how much we've advanced. It is a fascinating idea to think about what is where we were coming from, and and I don't want to get into why everyone's fighting this and in, in the in the status quo, but it's ego and other things like that. But the main one question I'd love to have, talk to you about because it has not really been talked about publicly a lot: Antarctica. I've mm -hmm. seen these these satellite images of these yeah. massive 
structures that could arguably, as they say, pyramids um, that are bigger than the Great much bigger sure. than the Great Tell yeah. me what you tell me what you've learned. No, I, I've seen them as well. So Antarctica is is a mystery uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, it is supposed to be international property that no one owns. And there were agreements signed in the early 20th century that it would not be militarized. We signed those same agreements for space and we signed them for the moon. And both of those have been violated. We, we have militarized space. We have weapons in space. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy about what has been done on, on the lunar surface and how it's been done. The same goes with Antarctica. We know that China has their military base. Germany has theirs. Uh, Russia has theirs. The United States has theirs. Uh, we, we've obviously militarized uh, Antarctica. What has happened since global warming, and as a geologist, I'll just say straight up, global warming is a fact. We've been talking about, we were giving people a heads up that we should be moving into a warming cycle. Humans didn't cause it. We've contributed to it, but if there were no humans, we would still be, the geologic record shows, you know, we would still be in in a, a warming cycle. Mm -hmm. So so the warming is happening and it is melting this uh, uh, two miles of ice that has been there for about 20,000 years. And as that began to happen, it began to expose these complex structures. Now, one of the first things I learned as, an, uh, as a student of archeology span is that nature never builds in 90 degree angles. Right. And, uh, you know, you won't see a, a river like coming down and been, you know, doing one of these things and uh, and you don't <laughs> see wind eroding in a, in a 90 degree angle. So one of the first things you, you look for, if you're looking on another planet or if you're looking, you know, for lost civilizations here on Earth, is you begin looking uh, for these 90 evidence of 90 degree angles in uh, in architecture. And what began showing up in Antarctica, and again, this isn't like a little one room pit house. These are massive complex structures with room after room after room after room within rooms, within rooms. Uh, and once those, this was around 2016, 2017, then Google Earth pixelated all of that out. And if you go to look at Antarctica right now, you will not see any of that. However, I've, I've got pre-pixelated images showing uh, where you can compare the, the same areas. So they don't want us seeing what, uh, what it is that is, is there. Why? Why is My that? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, it messes up the story. Remember, there's a battle. There's a battle for what's called the standard model of, of history. The standard model says we began primitive about 5,000 years ago. And slowly, gradually, we've evolved into the pinnacle of sophistication that, that we have today. And it's only happened once. What the cyclic model shows is that there are different kinds of technologies, Alex. And, and you can have an advanced technology and not have it based in transistors and resistors. There are other kinds of technologies. And my sense is that if these technologies... Uh, so I'm going to go back as a geologist once again. The catastrophic event theory that now ha has a lot of evidence of, of a comet impact. So here's, I'll just lay the ground here. Here's what was happening. We were coming in the Pleistocene 
we were coming out of the ice age and earth was, was beginning to warm as, as it would cyclically. All of a sudden, and this is quick, you see this drop where the, the temperatures uh, on the planet drop quickly and we plunge into briefly uh, into another ice age. But what also happens during that time is there's a rapid rise in sea levels that are happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense until you begin to look at the evidence. It appears that this comet that impacted, scientists have been resistant to accept this theory because they'd say for something that big, it'd have to leave a, a big hole in the ground. They're assuming it was one piece that hit Earth. What we now know is there were some big pieces and they have now found the craters in Greenland and Newfoundland, but now they have found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of smaller craters all the way from Greenland and Newfoundland, all the way down across Europe, down into South Africa. And when they go to do the, uh, the geologic testing of the craters, what they find are high amounts of standalone platinum. This is important because, first of all, platinum is a rare element to begin with. When you find it on Earth, it is generally with uh, another mineral called iridium. Iridium is a transition metal in the platinum family. There is no iridium suggesting, and scientists now they say this in the open literature, this is of extraterrestrial origin. It's not terrestrial geology, it's, out, it's, it's incoming. Mm-hmm. So, so this comet broke up and scattered hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of these craters. And when that happened, the ice in, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, most of uh, North America, most of Northern Europe, Northern Latitudes was covered in ice. There's what was called an ice wall that was holding back large amounts of, of water that was from the melt. This comet brought a rapid intense heat that was enough to, to melt that ice wall. And there was a rapid infusion of water. So first of all, it was, uh, uh, it had a different salinity than the ocean, different temperature, it infused into the Atlantic. And we, we can see this, we have records of this. Sea levels rose in some places 200 feet. If you can imagine the 200 foot sea level rise, um, in, so in a very so Disney World's gone. Disney World's gone. Essentially. Oh man! Well, most of the, <laughs> the coastal areas are gone, and uh, and so all of this happened in in a really really very compressed period of time during a, a mysterious time called the drier yugas, mm-hmm. um, uh, or the the uh, not the the yugas uh, the younger dryas. We were talking about the Hindu yugas. It's called the younger dryas. Dryas is the name of a flower that you typically see in certain climatic uh, conditions. And when that flower began to, to appear uh, in the ways that it did, that was where this came from. So, so there's a little period of time called the Younger Dryas. That, uh, my, my friend, um, uh, I have a couple of friends that have done a, a lot of document, documentation on this. And, uh, you know, there's some pushback on it if, if people watch any of the video netflix series or anything like mm-hmm. that uh you know they're they're talking about graham hancock has done the netflix series i don't know if you saw this last mm-hmm. week uh the archaeological association is now petitioning to have 
the series, if if Netflix is going to, to hold it, they would prefer they not show it. If they're going to show it, they want them to reclassify it from a documentary. They don't want it called a documentary. They now want to call it science fiction. Uh, even though, yeah, because uh, because it is now the most popular and most viewed uh, episode or, or series on Netflix, and it's giving a lot of people a, a lot of ideas about about our past. So it it changes the story. But then I'm back to Antarctica, and the reason I, I talked about the the influx of the water and the, and the dropping of the temperature quickly. If this was a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated civilization, the change that we saw happened so quickly, there's a good chance that whatever technology they were using is still there. It was preserved. They didn't have time to, uh, you know, to, to cart it away or anything. I mean, this, this is a very quick event. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And that technology uh, threatens the status quo of the technology that we have today. Obsolete technologies like internal combustion engines and the burning, the burning of fossil fuels to create energy. I mean, those have served us and we have made great advancements based upon that. And we are at a point now where uh, I'm amazed that we're still using internal combustion energy and, and still burning stuff uh, to, you know, to create that kind of energy. So I think this is the reason that uh, they're trying to cover this up. You know, there was a film crew from uh, Los Angeles. There was some university students and there were some professionals that went down to document what was happening and they have not been heard from since they've disappeared. Um, They, their families suspect that they have found some of these bases and are simply and we're uh, in Antarctica and Antarctica. Yeah, in Antarctica. That they are are being held. They're not I don't they don't know that they have died, but they if they were successful in finding the bases, they probably would not have been allowed to leave. So uh so Antarctica, a lot of mystery happening around Antarctica, and there's a lot of diversion away from that. Mainstream doesn't want to talk about it. They're, they've been told not to talk about that. So, Well, well let me ask you this, because it, it, the Younger Dryas, which, yeah, Graham Hancock is doing doing, doing the Lord's work in many ways, uh, doing what he's doing over these years. And that documentary series has been, it's kind of like ignited a whole conversation about this. Yeah. But the Antarctica stuff has not been talked about too much. If there is these, these, um, these uh, structures that are being shown after the melt, how because we're not this is beyond the younger dryas this is this is deep into antarctica so that means that that that's been there for a long period of time what is your estimation well this is this is where it, it gets really interesting where is there a mother civilization or a father civilization depending on on how you want to look at this indigenous traditions i i for uh for over 40 years i've led groups into the the andes of southern peru Actually, in September, we're getting ready to take, it'll be my 39th trip in 36 years Nice. Uh, in, in the Peru. We haven't been since COVID. It's been uh, the indigenous, yeah, the indigenous populations have not had really much outside contact since COVID. Um, 
their traditions, whether we're talking about the Southern Andes or we're talking about the Aboriginals uh, or in Papua New Guinea or Australia or New Zealand or, um, you know, the American desert Southwest, the Navajo, the Hopi, they all talk about previous worlds. They all say that they are the, the remnant that emerged from a previous civilization. And they almost universally, uh, all of the stories, as different as the traditions are from one another, they all tell the story of the great flood. Um, presumably this flood is the resulting of, of a rapid melting of the ice and the rising of the sea levels and what that what that does is when this when the ice there was a time about 30% during the pleistocene about 30% of uh of the surface area of the earth was covered in ice and what that does where that ice comes from it's seawater if it's not in the sea that means the sea levels are lower because the water's locked up in the ice if the water is lower it is exposing land that connects continents, land bridges, like between Alaska and Siberia, for example, where humans could presumably walk. Um, and the same Philippines, is happening. Yeah, the, Fil the Philippines Islands were all a big it, land mass. Exactly, exactly. So when you go back far enough, the indigenous traditions talk about a continent, and there are different names for this. We've all heard of these. We've heard of Lemuria uh, in the Pacific, uh, James Churchward in late uh, uh, 1800s, early 1900s, linked that with uh, the lost continent of Mew, which would have uh, extended from Hawaii is, is the high part that remains above water today, uh, down to, uh, to the uh, Malaysian islands to the, to the west, uh, and then down to Easter Island to the south. Those were all part of the, this, this massive continent uh, and, and an advanced civilization in the Pacific. On the Atlantic side, of course, we hear about Atlantis mm -hmm. and the, the technology and uh, what happened there. Well, as again, as, as a geologist, it's interesting because on the Atlantic side, where Atlantis, where Plato says Atlantis was, uh, is exactly at a, a place where three of the continental plates Come, it's a triple junction for the mm -hmm. continental plates, the African plate, the North American plate, and, uh, and the, the, uh, the, the northern plate to the side. When those plates come together, not only are, are they often subducted, one goes under another. Like right now, the Pacific plate is being subducted by the North American plate. And that means the Pacific plate is moving underneath North America to the east. So I'm in New Mexico, just outside of Santa Fe, mm -hmm. Colorado Rockies. The mountain ranges that we see, the, that is the leading edge of the Pacific Plate. So in other words, if, if I drilled far enough down from my studio right now, I would actually hit the Pacific Plate because it's being subducted. Mm -hmm. That happens sometimes. What also happens is at a triple junction like this is there's an undulation that happens over time. And, uh, and both of those appear to, to be what is happening precisely the place where Atlantis was said to have existed. And maybe this is the answer to the question that began this conversation. Uh, when Atlantis submerged pretty quickly, the sea levels rose and they lost everything and they sent people, they sent 
survivors into what they called the four corners of the world with the knowledge that they had gained. They didn't have the tools, but they had the knowledge and they tried to replicate that in with the materials and the tools that they had. So, um, so this may be the answer to the question, where did this knowledge come from? And it all links back to a catastrophic event uh, that was, was not foreseen even by an advanced civilization that obviously they had the knowledge, they knew about the cosmos and the stars and our relationship to the stars. Where Antarctica may be a little bit different is it appears to have been even older than these other civilizations and the, the indigenous traditions, the stories, the cultural stories say that there was a link to our cosmic family through Antarctica. And there have been reports from people who have, you know, insiders that have come through whistleblowers and things like mm. that, that not only is there, are the advanced structures, but possibly craft that were stuck in the ice, mm. um, you know, when this happened. And if that's the case, then it implies technology that can be reverse engineered that could could forever free us from the shackles of the fear and the lack and the scarcity of the kinds of technology that we're uh, that we're offered today. Things like fi finite, you know, all the technology. The technology is bringing us together right now. And the reason that the green revolution is not going to work is because it is based upon the use of 17 rare earth elements right. in just a couple of locations on earth uh, right now in nations that are not sometimes so friendly to the West. And it's a finite, it's a, a relatively small, it's a finite supply of these rare earth minerals to make the batteries, uh, to make the copper, to make the solar panels and things like, they're good stepping stone. We, I think we need to embrace them to move to a more sustainable form, but they are not going to be the answer. And it could be that when we find uh, whatever is hidden in Antarctica, that it offers that technology. And that might be one of the reasons why it's, uh, it's not being shared right now. It, it ties into disclosure. And mm -hmm. the reason that all the disclosure is not as forthcoming, it's not so, I don't think anybody's surprised that we're, we have a cosmic family. I mean, we, you know, I think that's pretty broadly accepted. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But the implications of an advanced technology and what it would mean uh, to our world today, from my perspective, uh, it could be a beautiful thing that frees us in, in a way that does just that. It allows sovereignty for the individual uh, and for society. And that is in direct opposition hmm. to the attempts to subjugate and control that are, are being levied right now through, uh, through technology. So, yeah, it, well, I mean, long, it, it, long answer to a short question. It, well, I mean, <laughs> and, and it's, it's, you know, if tomorrow morning someone woke up and said, oh, I discovered how we could get free energy, um, it would be stopped instantly. It, I mean, look, even the electric car in the early 2000s came out and it was working fine. And then they said, no, 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 this doesn't work with our business model. And they pulled it off the market. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, the, the, you know, the, Alex, I'm going to say my, my first uh, job out of college, I, I was hired, I was a, an, a geology major, geophysics major. Uh, I was hired in the industry without my degree initially, because I also had a parallel background in computer science. And in the seventies, that was pretty much unheard of computers were in, they were, they took up a whole room. Very few people knew how to talk to a computer. Uh, and I, I was a pretty good programmer in, in the early programming languages. Uh, and I was hired by an energy company and I, I finished my degree going nights once I was, I was working there. One of the first things that I, I saw when I was there is that this was 1978, 79 is that there was a carburetor that would allow uh, a gas guzzling vehicle to get over 90 miles to the gallon. And this was in the 1970s. Hmm. And that carburetor threatened the energy industry because if all of a sudden cars are getting 90 miles to the gallon, you're not gonna use as much gas, sales are gonna drop. So they bought they bought up that patent and they sat on it. And to the best of my knowledge, they're still sitting on it. It has never we're not using carburetors now. We have elect, I mean, the same way, you know, we've got electronic ignition and and different kinds of engines. But uh, but that was an example of where a technology was developed that threatened the status quo. And to to subdue it, it they just bought it outright and never, never used it. So, you know, we're at this crossroad right now. By the way, we had, uh, I, if you saw me look down, I just sent a text to my next interview telling them I'm going to run over on this one. Oh, I appreciate because, that. <laughs> yeah, you. well, this is an important conversation. It's a soft, it's a pre-record, so, so I can do that uh, by okay. a few minutes, not, not a lot, sure. but by a few Fair minutes. Enough. Fair enough. Um, but this is, this is where we are, and, and this, is, this conversation about the ancient civilizations, it's not happening in a vacuum. It is happening within the context of a crossroad. Here we are as a civilization at, at a crossroad where we're being uh, threatened. The freedoms that allow our creativity and our intuition and our imagination to create great and beautiful things to free us as, uh, as a society, to free us as a species. Those are all now facing the just the opposite, the technology that wants to control, uh, that wants to um, to take away the sovereignty that we've had so for, for a lot of different reasons. And we're seeing this through social media, of course, we're seeing it through the transhuman movement, the the movement that that believes that we are flawed as a species that we need to replace our biology with artificial intelligence, with, uh, with gadgets, with computer chips in the brain to be, to be more efficient. All this is part of a bigger conversation. And I think what it, it invites all of us to do, we've all got to come to terms with what, what is it that we value? What values do we cherish as individuals? What values do we cherish as families, as communities, as societies, as nations, as, as a species? And we've got to claim those values now because that is what is being threatened. And the, the, the hiding of the truth, the hiding of advanced technology, the hiding of our extraordinary potentials within our own bodies, 
super immune system, super cognition, super memory, super learning, all the things that we're told we need gadgets or we need chemicals to do. Our bodies do it even better. All the gadgets and the chemicals are mimicking what we already do in ourselves, except we do it better. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of things that, uh, that are at stake right now. We're at this very, very powerful crossroad where if we, it's, and it's not going to last forever. This is moving quickly in one generation. We either choose to cherish and value our humanness and our sovereignty and our freedom, or we're going to lose it as a species. And this, this is how you lose a species. We'll become a hybrid technology, biological species uh, where emotions are bred out of our existence because they're inefficient where our memories that don't serve us uh, become a, a thing of the distant past. This is exactly what the technology is doing now. And so the conversation about ancient civilizations is important because it tells us we do have a history. We've been here longer than we've been led to believe. We've had advanced technology in the past. We had to, to, to see the kinds of things that, that we're seeing right now. And I think ultimately what it says is if we have had these in the past, and we as a species, if we, if we have built great and beautiful things together as a species, and then something happened and, and we lost all of that, if we came together as a, mm. as a family, as a global family, how far could we go this time with everything that we have now? We've got all that we need to create the evolutionary edge so that we not just survive, that we thrive through all of the things that we're seeing right now, all of the war, all the climate change, all the social change, all the political change. But we've got to claim those values, I think, and, and make those values the foundation of all the, all the policies and all the laws and all the choices. So, so that's my soapbox. And, and, <laughs> and that's why I think the past is important, Alex, because mm -hmm. if we don't know who we are and where we've come from, and we've made mistakes in the past, we're going to repeat those with the cycles as uh, as they come again. Uh, Greg, uh, you know I could talk to you for at least another five or six hours. Please, uh, please promise to come back and we have another deep conversation about many of the things we kind of touched upon in well, this one. Well, thank you. Well, I want to ask you, so you and I are having this conversation. Have you had this conversation with other guests? I've I've dabbled in it and it's, it's an area that I want to start touching more upon because my audience, based on our last conversations, which we touched upon, certain aspects of it. We also talked about simulation theory and other things like that. It is something that I people are super interested in and super fascinated in. And I think it's something that not only talks about our um, our past as a species, but the implications spiritually that it has for everybody and where we've been spiritually, where we've been in, in evolution of our of our soul and our spirituality through throughout the you know hundreds of thousands of years even. That is something I'm really interested in kind of diving. We didn't even touch the spirituality aspect of all of well, this. So can we can we go can we go till 10 after the hour? Are you oh, all right? please, please. Oh, yeah. I'm, so, I'm, yeah, I'm I, here as I, long as you like, sir. <laughs> no, I I, uh, I did a quick text. I apologize. I texted while you were speaking just to let my next interview know. Uh, I'd be a few minutes late. Appreciate that. When, when we talk about spirituality, it means different things, different people. And I think there's a deeper conversation that goes beyond spirituality to, a, and I'll, I'll use the term, I'll, I'll mention it and I'll define it. It goes to our divinity. Mm. 
And when you when you look up the term, and I, I think we may have talked about this a little bit in our, our last conversation, when you you look up the term divinity, a lot of people associate divinity with religion. And I can see why religion would have hijacked the term. Sure. But the, the term divinity, actually, if you look up the definition, it's interesting. It means the ability to transcend perceived human limitations, our ability to not just survive, but to become more than to thrive in the presence uh, beyond the limitations that we may have imposed upon ourselves in the past. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. What's happening today is there is a, a movement to keep us from our divinity, to keep us so that we feel that we are powerless victims of a world that we have no control over. And if you're a victim, it means you need a savior. And the savior that's being touted is technology. Mm -hmm. we're, we're being taught, and our young people are being taught, all you need to do, you know, is to embrace this you know, this piece of technology, this virtual reality or computer chip, there's a proposal now to implant computer chips into the brains of all newborns to give them the edge so they can compete successfully in the world today. What's being missed is that when our biology is replaced by technology, if you have a computer chip working for you, it means that your neurons think they're no longer needed and your your systems begin to atrophy. If you pump chemicals into your body for an immune response, your natural immune system says, maybe you don't need me anymore. The systems will begin to atrophy. You don't have the robust systems. And this is precisely what's happening today. And, and this is where we lose our, our sovereignty as an individual because we feel that we need something outside of us to to be the best version of ourselves and to be successful in life it's a very very different way of thinking and it's being done through really slick marketing i mean i'm aware of it and i'm still in awe of how sexy the marketing is when i see the youtube you know if you watch a, a youtube video you're going to get commercials you know while you're watching that video Mm -hmm. And some of those commercials, if I, if I were a young person and didn't know what I know now, I can see where they would be drawn to sure. want to, to, you know, what's wrong with a computer chip in your brain or a, a well, special. But it goes into that whole superhuman superhero aspect of it. You're like becoming Iron Man. You're becoming Iron Man. And that's kind see, of the, the way they're positioning the, the, it. Exactly. But this is, this is where, this is the battle that's coming down now for, for our divinity, because do you accomplish that by giving away your humanness to a technology or do you accomplish that by developing the potential of, of yeah. human biology? We don't even know what that potential is, but here, here's now, this is where the spirituality comes in. When you replace biology with polymers, synthetics, AI, and computer chips, you have replaced DNA with artificial technology the dna is the link to our spirituality the dna is the link to our biology because and and our divinity because the dna literally dna and the genes that make the dna are literally antenna they are soft antenna that tune us 
to information in a field of energy that scientists tell us underlies and, and connects all things. That is not controversial. Scientists are on board. There's a field underlying all existence, including us. We're in constant communication, non-verbally, through energetic transactions. Our DNA is picking up information. That's, that's where in, intuition comes from. When mm -hmm. you hear the voice in your head that says, this is a good thing to do, or, or this is not a good thing to do, or when you, when you go into prayer, and you ask for help and guidance, and you receive that, you receive that because it is coming through this energetic pathway. If we give away our biology mm. to computer chips and synthetic technology, it might help in the moment. You're giving away your divinity, your access to your greatest potential, because now you're no longer able to, to communicate through these information pathways that we're only beginning to understand. You know, this is one of the reasons cloning technology, there's a mystery to cloning. Mm -hmm. Scientists in Dolly, the first sheep that was cloned, I mean, others had been done, but that was the, the first public uh, uh, clone, appeared to be successful at first. And then something mysterious happened. She, her body began to break down and she died uh, at about 50% of the age attained by her species. And it's not a one-off. All kinds of scientific articles are out there, peer-reviewed articles. They do this with cows. Now, bovine cloning for, uh, for you know, they, they want to breed certain kinds of, of cattle. Neat. They, yeah. they, they clone them. At first, they look fine. They might produce a couple of offspring. They will not live their full lifespan. They begin to degenerate and break down from weird diseases. And what here's what they've missed it is in the cloning, there's a mismatch in the in the cloning. They they take the ovum, they pull the DNA out and put in the DNA from another animal, but that DNA still has to communicate with the rest of the cell, and it can't because. It is a different DNA from another animal. There's a, a mismatch. And that is, that is an example of what happens to humans when we embrace, begin replacing biology. We're replacing our DNA with chips and wires and chemicals. We are actually limiting our, our potential. We're limiting our potential because we're losing the information pathway to our divinity. That's a huge statement. And that, yeah. that's and the other the other part. And I've just uh, saw a series of articles on this in the science journals. A computer chip, it's definitely fast, definitely efficient, definitely mm -hmm. logic, uh, much more logical maybe than human emotion. But that chip will always be limited by the physics of the stuff it's made from. Whereas a human neuron, and the the cell uh, the cell walls of of, uh, of of a human well human cells mm -hmm. we are scalable and what that means is that when our neurons for example when they reach what we used to think was the upper end of their ability to transmit information mm -hmm. now the neurons adapt and are able to begin transmitting higher speeds of more information. Uh, than we ever thought was possible. We don't know the upper end of our scalability. 
we are a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated, soft technology. And I talk about that a lot in other programs, the books, all kinds of YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Soft technology. We're not chips and wires and chemicals. We're cell membranes and neurons moving ion potentials across the cell wall. And here's the beauty. You don't have to know any of it because we use thought, feeling, emotion, belief, breath, and focus. That's it. And this is what our ancestors always told. You don't have to know the tech because we're such an advanced tech. The interface is so simple. And that's the beautiful thing. And that's and we're so much more advanced than any technology that we. I mean, no one's been able to. No one's been able to duplicate the, the insanity that is our body. It is. It is our brain. How our brain works. How our cells work. How we're able to regenerate ourselves. None of it. None of it. And it sounds like from the cloning thing that you were saying that there is a failsafe in our system. That there, there's, there's someone, something, in the creation of the process of what we are made of. There is a failsafe that you can't. You can't mess well, around this is, with it. It's, uh, you said that so beautifully, Alex. Thank you. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a scientist and I believe in science. Uh, we've got to keep science honest mm-hmm. if science is going to serve us. And science has been hijacked by politics, religion, corporations, technology. Uh, we ask science to tell us who we are. And science has done a good job. The question is, do we love ourselves enough? Do we love ourselves enough to accept the truth of what science is telling us? And the cloning experiments, I think, is one of the pathways that will lead science to understand and accept what it is that you and I are saying right now. If they are ever going to be successful in the cloning technology, they will have to accept that there's an information exchange Hmm. that is happening within the cell to a field outside of the cell and that there has to be a match of the antenna. So um, just just to clarify, here's what I mean. In in the cell, there's a nucleus of the cell. We know there's DNA in there. What a lot of people don't know is there is DNA outside of the nucleus, mitochondrial DNA. Mm -hmm. And so the the DNA in the inside has to be able to communicate with the DNA outside. Some people are calling this junk DNA. Well, it's not junk. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it has, it has, has a purpose. So, so, I mean, just think about this. There's a communication, the DNA inside and outside the cell. So if you now take the DNA inside the cell, throw it away, and you bring in DNA from another animal, presumably the same species, but you put that in there, there's going to be a mismatch. These two can't talk to one another. They can establish the information link, the resonant information link to the place in the field that allows them to be successful. And that's where the breakdown comes from. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So when the scientific community, they will have to embrace this. Now they'll never call it soul. They'll never call it spirit. They probably won't call it divinity, but it will lead them They'll have to understand this if they're ever going to be successful with the, uh, with the cloning technology. So, so uh, I think there is a place where we will meet with this kind of knowledge, and maybe this is the process. Maybe this is how it happens. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It is. I mean, like I said, I could talk to you for hours, Greg. And I think these conversations are so important because they are starting to 
plant seeds in people that might have never thought about these things because they've just been, you know, and, and you can go through, they've been, they, they, they swallowed basically whatever they've been given. And I mean, you just go back to when I was growing up that uh, egg yolks were good and whites were bad. And then they're like, no, 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 we're kidding. Now the whites are good. Now the eggs are yellow is bad. But now they're like, no, 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 it's kind of like, so it's kind of, it's always just something as yeah. basic of an example as that. So you have to question. And nowadays we're not just followers. There's so much information accessible to all of us like these conversations that we got to start asking questions about things that are mysterious, even quantum physics. The, sure. the physics community doesn't even want to accept these ideas yet. And it's like, come on already, for God's sake. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, I, I just want to acknowledge to our viewers, we covered a lot of ground today <laughs> at, at a, a high level, maybe didn't do it justice. Maybe we shouldn't have, have breached, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the topics, but, but they all really are part of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's about us, our potential, our relationship to the world around us. And ultimately it's about our, our ability and our willingness to love and honor the body that we have, the history is telling us about who we have been and what our potential is. So, so the, the battle for our story involves these ancient civilizations. And it's, it's not like a little offshoot over here. I think it's, it's central. To, to what's happening. And I, I really appreciate you. I had no idea. This is unscripted, obviously. I had no idea what we're going to talk about today. And and I appreciate you choosing uh, this particular topic because I, I do think it's it's important. And maybe we laid the foundation for Alex and Greg, uh, volume three. Yes, I hope so, my friend. We definitely got to get you back on the show. Greg, I know you're a busy man. I know you got to go. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything, anywhere that people, if people want to find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing, where did it go? You know, they, uh, first of all, I have a dedicated YouTube channel so that the work cannot be sliced and diced and misrepresented as it is when it's not on that channel. Mm -hmm. uh, so Greg Braden uh, on, on YouTube, there's only one official channel uh, where we talk about a lot of these things in more detail and much more, as well as I uh, just go to the website, gregbraden.com, G-R-E-G-G, two G's, B-R-A-D-E-N.com and uh, trips to Peru, you know, uh, speaking engagements all over the world, things like that. So Alex, thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you for your trust, my friend, and for sharing me with your community. Uh, I'm honored and I, I look forward to, uh, to part three. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you again. Right, thanks so much. Take care. I want to thank Greg so much for coming back on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash two three, nine. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.